Say It Skillfully is about being who you really are and saying what you think needs to be said, even at work. Whether you're part of a small project team or leading a giant company, the more you accept that you're part of the problem, the faster you can be part of the solution. Join Molly Chang today as together we break the silence and learn how to be happier, healthier, and more productive at work and in life. Hello, Molly here. Welcome to Say It Skillfully, helping you find the words to create shared reality in a way that's true to yourself. I have the pleasure and privilege of crossing paths with my guest today as he led a panel that I was on. And it was for people keen to be allies to the black and Asian communities. It was a very positive jolt for me to learn from him and wanted my listeners to have the benefit as well. Not so long ago, he was bright-eyed and a voracious student at Temple University, where he's now on faculty. As a student, he came to see how higher education was not readily accessible for most, and even more difficult for the underrepresented and underprivileged members of his communities. With his own thirst for knowledge, he earned many degrees, a Bachelor's of Arts in Asian Studies, Master's in Liberal Arts, and both a Master's and PhD in African American Studies. During his short tenure at Temple, he's been a shooting star, known as a dynamic and innovative speaker, educator, artist, and facilitator. So popular with students, he combines wealth of knowledge, uncanny energy, and unique oratorical abilities to translate hip-hop culture into a universal language of leadership, learning, and love. Known as the rapping professor, he uniquely and dynamically engages the Gen Z students of today to help them love to learn. He is committed to empowerment through education and an end to systematic racism. I am honored to welcome, live from Temple University in Philadelphia, Assistant Professor in the Department of Africology and African American Studies, Dr. Aaron Smith. Aaron, welcome to Say It Skillfully. Hello, hello, everyone. How are you, Molly? Uh, I could not be better. I'm chatting with you to start off my week, so spectacular. And it's a short uh, week. Yes, it's a short week. It's, it's, it's like, a, by definition, a great week for folks. Everyone's all smiles and the sun's out finally in, uh, in the Big Apple, at least. Uh, so, Aaron, I really appreciate your willingness to join me and help listeners consider racism and what we can do about it. I know there's a lot of lack of hope, arms in the air. Um, before we get to that, uh, would you kindly help folks get to know you a bit, uh, where you come from, what's behind your own passion to serve the next generation? I'm originally from Montclair, New Jersey. A lot of what I talk about is from a perspective as a racial optimist. I talk about racism being a zero-sum game, but race not being a zero-sum game. I say race is not a zero-sum game about winners and losers, but racism is. And just trying to get to the point where we look at people humanity in a way that you could see yourself in other people, because I think a lot of the underlining issues, challenges, and problems related to xenophobia and intolerance along racial lines could be resolved if people just had a certain degree of empathy, basically a golden rule approach to treat people how you would want to be treated in similar situations. So that's a mouthful, and, and seriously, folks, I wish I, could, I wish I could transport just a small percentage of your perspective and your knowledge to folks, because I do believe knowledge is power. Will you talk about growing up in Montclair and what was it like for you racially? Did you experience a lot of bias, Erin? 
No, uh, part of my racial optimism comes from that unique experience growing up in Montclair, New Jersey. The history of the town actually is involved with the sons and daughters of those who were more progressive in their time in terms of, you know, interracial relationships and even uh, tolerance in terms of living conditions. So there's a history of New Jersey that has um, a bit of a, a unique perspective on our potential to relate and to cooperate that I, I try to bring to my presentations as a racial optimist. So when I went to college, you know, and I started to see how other people's experiences were vastly different in, in those regards, it almost felt as though people were cheated, you know, by being put in the xenophobic box, you know, sometimes by their parents or by, you know, the, the school system that they were privy to in a way where they, they weren't interested and weren't, they didn't have the tolerance to really, um, you know, appreciate other people. They, they didn't have the skill set. They weren't given the language. They weren't, you know, prepared with the courage to step outside of certain boxes and really judge people on individual merit. And I, I really saw that that was a deficiency in society that could be remedied simply with some education and exposure to the full humanity of other people. So that's a that's a very advanced for a young person, Erin. I have to give you credit for that. So your studies at school, did you know that that was what you wanted to study before you went in? I'm just wondering how this epiphany of, and I kind of get that in the sense that I grew up fairly sheltered. And then when I got to university, I'm like, wow, you know, like other people are living in something far different than, than I came out of. And that was a, an awakening for me. Um, so I'm just wondering how that informed what you wanted to study. If, if, if you, unless you knew that early on, that's what you wanted to, to learn about. Well, for me, interestingly enough, when I was in high school, it was when uh, the Rodney King verdict came out. And I just remember students rallying against systemic oppression and equal justice as opposed to rallying against other communities. So I remember even as students, people taking a, a systems approach, a systematic analysis of a problem as opposed to making it some type of musical chairs, tug of war, where people would place blame on other groups of people and allow, you know, uh, inequality to divide people. So I always had that approach to, to issues and problems in society as, as we need to approach the problem collectively as opposed to blame each other and make each other the problem. But when I got to college, I always wanted to expand my mind. That was my goal. I was a psychology major, and then I actually took a class in Japanese, and later learned that there was a, a Asian studies major that was actually growing at the university at the time. It was a fairly new department. And just this, this opportunity to enter a world completely different than my own just seemed to be a far more worthwhile investment. I didn't want to just repeat what I'd already studied in high school. I didn't want to be in my comfort zone. I didn't want to, you know, remain in a box. I was really interested in, in growing and the growth potential in the department of, of Asian studies, you know, seemed to be unmatched from where I was coming from because that was an experience that I had very little knowledge of personally. And they had a Temple University Japan um, satellite campus that I had planned to study abroad at. I didn't get a chance to study abroad because I began doing radio. But just this opportunity to really just expand my mind and step outside of my box and just, you know, become a new person intellectually from being exposed to other people's perspectives and lives was always something that really just excited me. Oh, I love your inherent growth mindset. Is that something your parents nurtured per se? Is that just kind of core to you? I'm wondering what your home environment was like as you were growing up. Um, I think it was just more 
more inherent to, to myself. My, my, my parents were definitely always tolerant. You know, we were, I was the only African-American uh, in my grade at one point uh, when I was living in Nutley, New Jersey as a, a young child. So just that, that ability to leave where you are. My, both my parents were from the Bronx and just come out to a, a small town. So that, that degree of courage, you know, and ability to step outside your box and, and not be afraid to, to be different. I think I inherited that from the way I grew up. But in terms of this, this growth mindset with academia, I just always looked at education as truly transformative. I always recognized the transformative potential of education. I remember uh, learning a lot about Malcolm X and his experiences being in prison and them referring to him as Satan, even the prisoners. And just having this understanding that him coming in contact with certain information transformed his mind and his purpose in life to the extent that he was able to transform the world. So just knowing what books could do, what information can do, what, you know, it seemed like nothing else can do, nothing else could change him. But just coming in contact with specific information at a specific time in a specific way had that transformative potential. So that, that was always, like, amazing to me that people just reading things and being exposed to things can just really change them in a way that all the punishment and propaganda in the world possibly couldn't. Ugh. I love it. You know, in addition to Malcolm X, other people who were inspirations, role models for you? Well, I, I think the class called Tupac and the Hip Hop Revolution, and I always just remember um, the the parallels between uh, Tupac Shakur and other truth tellers there the discomfort, how they were persecuted when they were here, how they were appreciated more after they were gone. So even in those moments, you know, where Tupac wasn't as popular or wasn't as accepted, I saw um, some parallels to his life that had me predicting that eventually more people would understand. And now that we talk more about racial profiling, which wasn't really a thing back then, even, you know, even though it was a thing to him, and police brutality, which wasn't really a systemic critique from, you know, numerous communities as much as it was in the hip-hop culture, a mass incarceration, the, the before uh, Michelle Alexander wrote that seminal text, The, the New Jim Crow, and, and uh, Ava DuVernay made that documentary, The 13th. You know, this is like years and years before all this stuff became common knowledge. So I remember thinking to myself that I think the, the appreciation for his artistry and his voice is going to increase over time. And I was just prayerful that he would be around to see it. But unfortunately, he was not here. But I, I'm blessed to be able to, you know, continue to contextualize his words and his legacy and his artistry in, in my class at Temple University. So that, that the hip-hop influence was probably one of the most major influences, groups like Public Enemy, who actually drew my attention to a lot of these political um, events and concerns in the African-American community because, you know, this was not something that was taught in school. No one was talking about the school-to-prison pipeline when I was in school, even though it existed. No one was talking about... Uh, racial profiling or, you know, so these were not things that were, we were talking about George Washington and why we should celebrate Christopher Columbus back when I was, you know, in high school and, and middle school. I know that you single-handedly could do a lot to inform our youth curriculum. Um, so Aaron, the getting into education as your profession, uh, when did you realize that's the path you wanted to pursue? And then talk to us about how you made that all happen. Actually, very late in my journey, I was a graduate student in my liberal arts degree. And in the liberal arts degree, they allow you to take 
classes in other departments. And that's how I met Dr. Malefe Kete Asante, who is the uh, chairperson in the Department of Africology at Temple, but also the first person in the world to create a PhD program in African-American studies, which was started about 30 years ago here at Temple University. And one day he was just sitting with me in an advisory capacity, and he says to me, have you ever considered the PhD? And I was like, not really, you know? And it just struck me to this day how planting a seed of curiosity in someone else's mind can just truly change the trajectory of their whole intellectual, personal, professional life. Because him asking me that one question led me on a journey and a quest and on a path that, you know, has just truly changed not just my life, but all the students that I impact and who I educate and speak to every day. You know, so I always weigh my words extremely powerfully now, recognizing how everything I say can potentially have the kind of impact and kind of transformative potential that his words had on my life. Ugh. I just want to package you and spread you everywhere. Um, amazing. Mm-hmm. I love how you're weighing your words, Aaron. So, um, and I know this really could be an all-day seminar for folks. So, I love a little bit of a, a primer, you know, when you just defining racism, systematic, systemic racism. I'd appreciate a little bit, if you don't mind sharing a little bit of a lecture and just to help people get their heads around it um, from the academic standpoint that you have. And then we'll go into what people can do about it. Oh, definitely. Um, one of the things that I always like to talk about is how we need to start with chronology. And I, I compare the current educational system to like the matrix or planet of the apes, you know, where we're told one thing, you know, but the reality of the situation, whether it's people being here long before Christopher Columbus, you know, or, or, you know, Leif Erikson, wherever here, or even the existence of the first colleges in the world being on the continent of Africa, people's, you know, human history, two thirds of human history occurred on that continent before anybody migrated off the continent. So I meet people every day who have no conceptualization or idea about anything related to African history. And then I say it's, it's challenging because as a human being, if two-thirds of the human being's history is on the continent of Africa and people are totally disconnected from that history and the realities of that history, then we're often put in a position where our perception of ourselves and our reality is distorted. I compare it to a scale. If the numbers were off by one or two numbers, everything you tried to weigh would be off. When you do white balance in cinematography, you know, without calibrating the camera correctly, everything you try to interpret, all the colors you would engage would be off. So I ask my students, what's the first book ever written on the first day of class? And they tell me Beowulf or the Bible or the, Il- or the Iliad. And I introduce them to a text called the Maxims of Patahotep, which is from about around 2880 BCE. And I say it's about 3,000 years to zero, and the first voice of intelligence out of Greece was 1,000 A.D. when Homer writes the Iliad. I said, you're 4,000 years off, and your weapon of choice is books. So if you can't even, you know, be within two to three or 4,000 years of when the first book was written, how can you properly assess the contributions of the people who were here for, as you already understand from, you know, your anthropology courses and your understanding of when papyrus was invented. You know, you know, paper was invented in Africa and you know that Egypt is in Africa, but you're telling me the first book was made in Greece. So what does that do subconsciously to your, perce- your perception of Africans? 
You think that Africans were sitting around with paper that they didn't write on, didn't do anything with, until somebody from Greece got hold of it, and then books started. There's only only certain ways, you know, to interpret that. You know, it's hard not to have some degree of a, a hierarchy when you're so misguided about the realities of history and human contribution, and to not recognize that these people like Socrates and Plato and Thales went to Africa to study. And there was no segregation. There was no lynching. There was no black flight out of Egypt when they came to study. So we have the human potential to get along. But oftentimes, instead of telling the truth about our potential, they'd rather maintain the lie about the lack of contributions of Africa and African people. So just to take the right pill in the matrix context and really understand, you know, the truth about the nation in a way where people could appreciate the, 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 the presence. So when you look at the Olmec heads or the origins of places like Brazil and Cuba and they see all these, you know, African-looking people on these different statues, they can make sense of it as opposed to denying it and then celebrate, you know, genocidal murderers and rapists like Christopher Columbus. I think it prepares us, you know, to be at odds with each other as opposed to really have a full understanding of who we have the potential to be, which is extremely collective and cooperative despite phenotypical differences. You Wow. Uh, so... Your students that come to your courses, uh, and I know that you've got quite a reputation already, um, so I imagine they're really knocking at the doors. So are they soaking it up? Are there people who are doubting? Just help me with how this younger generation is absorbing all that you're offering. Well, this is such a progressive generation. Like people hear about, you know, the the millennials and how how liberal they are and whatever you've heard, this experience with COVID has confirmed for so many that the old way isn't working. I think uh, Tupac said this on, on the song Changes. The old way wasn't working, so it's up to us to do what we got to do to survive. And the young people have really internalized that reality where they have firsthand been the the recipients, you know, of, of this hot potato game. Because every generation passes it to the next generation like the national debt, whether it's problems with, with gender equality and equal pay, whether it's problems with, with you know, uh, same-gender love. The generation after generation has said, I'll let somebody else deal with it. Thomas Jefferson said, I tremble for my country when I think, when I, you know, remember that God is just. So he knew that one day somebody's going to have to pay for all of this wrong and inhumanity toward man, but he knew that he wasn't going to be around for it, and every generation seemed to take the same stance toward these issues. So whether it's, you know, school loans or the environment, right, we have this landfill mentality where we just sweep it under the rug and the next generation will deal with it. And the millennials today are sitting here with the stench of these uh, proverbial landfills of, of cultural problems and conflicts and crises. And they realize that people before them have not been tending to their gardens and left them holding the bag. And this game of hot potato has scorched this generation in a way where they were endangered by a pandemic and in debt because of school loans and the, uh, you know, the the economy is in crisis and the ecology is not far behind it, and they are ready and ripe for change. Any different way to think about something than their parents did, they are completely willing to do it because they see where it's gotten them. In the 1950s and 1940s, it might have been beneficial to be xenophobic. You know, they were all white towns. They were offering no money down to move into the suburbs when they created trillions of dollars in white wealth. Back then, even if you weren't a racist, it was still good to go with that flow economically. Nowadays, you can be as mean and intolerant as you want, and all it's probably going to do is get you fired. It's not going to get you, you know, the wealth-building opportunities it did in generations past. 
So for uh, the young people to assume these same postures and perspectives, it doesn't benefit them in a tangible, pragmatic way, and they have already realized that it, it's temporal and it's not something that's lasting or based in reality to such an extent where when they get to a class like mine, you know, a lot of them are refreshed. And my best students are the skeptics because the skeptics go and do more research and they go further down the rabbit hole than the lectures, you know, typically provide. They come back and let me know, you know, that they didn't believe at first, but now they've learned so much more. And those are usually some of my best students, the ones that started off, you know, as skeptics. Oh, I love that. So your program, so, you know, part of, and, and this was, when we were on the panel, you know, one of the things I shared was that I could be where I am in life and realize that, wow, I didn't really uh, learn anything about Asian American history. And, and to your point about the content. So your thoughts really practically on how do we inject, you know, uh, more integrity in the curriculums of what young people learn beyond those fortunate enough to take your class. Um, and I'm not asking you to solve the whole problem, but just some thoughts on how we can begin that journey. I just think it really deals with the early curriculum because anybody who's worked with young people, I've worked in a nursery and none of the children suffer from this classism, sexism, racism type of thing until they get to be like maybe four years old. So apparently, you know, we got the, the parents are the problem, the structures are the problem, the curriculums are the problem because people are not born, you know, hating and being intolerant and being fearful and, and appreciating and maintaining systems of inequality. So I, that's the only institution we all seem to go through. You know, we all don't go to church, we all don't go to temple, we all don't go to mosques, we all, we all don't do, but we all seem to go to some type of, of school, even if it's homeschooling. So we need to make sure the curriculum encourages us to be more humane and be fuller human beings and recognize the full humanity of other people. And I think uh, one of the stories that I showed for the anti-Asian hate presentation, the, the woman said, I had one line in my education about the Chinese where she said, the Chinese helped build the railroad. And that was it. And I said, like earlier, everybody's cheated in that context. If all I know about a people is one moment in history for what, how can I engage the full humanity of a people if I'm being so miseducated, even about the reality of their contributions to the formation of America and American society? Like, I'm not even equipped. I'm not prepared. And then I'm just thrust into these scenarios and situations where I'm supposed to, you know, be able to get along with people, but I'm being miseducated in a way that's encouraging me to limit people, to put them in a box, to look at them in a broad brush monolithic way. So I think that it's, it's incumbent upon people from all different aspects of American society to make sure that we fight like hell to change the curriculum in these schools because the young people are coming into these situations ready to learn and grow and cooperate and love one another. But by the time we get out, we're totally afraid of each other and we're competing like it's musical chairs. And the only thing that I see that is different is the years that they spend in the traditional systems of education. And a lot of, a lot of it deals with things that just simply aren't true about history and about ourselves. Oh, Amen. Let's go. You've done some work with companies, and I'd love your perspective on what you're seeing. Um, what gives you hope about how organizations are trying to understand, trying to do the right thing? I am so encouraged. I never thought in my lifetime, at least this early, that I would be having these types of conversations with multinational Fortune 100 companies. And with, without a filter, you know, people really want you to tell the truth and it's a sincere 
dedication, especially on behalf of Johnson & Johnson, to really say we want to have an ongoing conversation and we are looking to transform corporate culture in a way that's more positive because the more people feel comfortable being themselves in a professional capacity, the better it is for everyone involved, the better it is for the profit margin, the better it is for the human resources department. You know, It's just a better environment that creates a better world because these are companies that have the kind of influence over society that can have a transformative effect within one generation. So I, I really am so encouraged by the companies that have reached out and, and showed some sincerity and not just, you know, trying to do it, you know, for shows, not just pop and circumstance. We don't look like we're progressive or woke. A lot of these companies are saying, no, no, we realize there is a problem that we can be better and do better. And a lot of the conversations that I've been able to have with, with major corporations have, have shown that, that interest. You know, once they recognize it, like you said, they weren't given this information. And if they knew better, you know, they would probably do better. So they have, you know, a great first step going on right now. You know, as a result of some of the unfortunate things that have been happening nationally, at least the response is very encouraging. And that's why when I say racial optimist, it's not a denial of the reality, but just a recognition of our potential. Yeah, I love how you're, you're so able to express this. And I'm just hoping listeners are eating this up. Uh, for the listeners, and I know there's a wealth of, of resources, but are there a few things, Aaron, that you might share that you'd suggest people look up to get started, you know, and I'm not saying comprehensively, um, but I'd welcome any thoughts from you. Oh, yeah. See, I got I to um, get to class, too, so I'm going to um, make sure I end with, with some book suggestions. That's always good for a professor. Um, Cash is Good, Isabella Wilkerson. She also wrote a book called um, The Warmth of Other Sons about the great migration of African Americans from the South. She has a new book called Cass. Um I would suggest The New Jim Crow by Michelle Alexander. There's a book by Ibram Kendi, uh, stamped from the beginning. Um, the chair of our department, Dr. Lebe Kete Asante, talks a lot about perspective and Afrocentricity, so that would be a name that I would definitely um, take hold in terms of book suggestions. But those are a few good ones to start with because, you know, it really just takes you out of that traditional education model and gives you an opportunity to just look at things from a different perspective. Because I always say we live in a three-dimensional world and everyone can speak the truth from their perspective and be telling the truth and actually be right. It doesn't make people wrong because they feel and think differently. It just means they're looking at it from a different vantage point. But with that being said, I'm going to jump off this and jump into my Zoom um, and just much love to all the great people. Don't give up hope. Look how far we've come. And there's so much farther we have to go. And if you ever get doubtful, just look in the eyes of the youth because they believe anything is possible, at least till we teach them otherwise. Learn more, love more. I appreciate you having me on. Uh, you are a superstar, Aaron. Bless you. And go forth and conquer. Take good care. Boy, Thank is there so someone? Much. Take care, everybody. <laughs> ciao, ciao. Talk about being part of the solution. Hello, folks. Live from Dr. Aaron Smith. Wow, all of you folks at Temple University, you go. And uh, I wanna take that class. Okay, uh, so moving, I am thrilled now to move across the Atlantic to the UK, and I am very pleased to welcome Yen to the show. Yen, how are you? Hi, Molly, it's a pleasure to be on the call today, and uh, I'm doing good, thanks for having me. That's great, I appreciate you making time, and I'm really curious what, a uh, challenging conversation or, or sensitive situation is on your mind. Um, right. So um, I practice as an architect, and from time to time I facilitate for ontological and somatic um, type of uh, sessions. Um, so that's kind of like, you know, 
to the very different things that I do. But I've been introduced to your wonderful channel through a friend of mine some time back. And I truly love the two-minute clips that you give out nuggets of insights and doses of wisdom. This is how I call it. Um, so although you coach organizations and teams primarily, I thought it would be great to hear about what you think about teams or teaming up in families and family structures and how do we generate appropriate space for listening and safety also as a way to tap into our felt sense so that we could meaningfully co-create shared realities, if that's okay. Yeah, I think that would be great. And you know, you you had a mouthful about the work that you're doing, the anthropomorphic, etc. Could you just go back for listeners and just help us appreciate a bit of what that is and what you're doing? Because I think that that's really a fascinating mm-hmm. space. Sure. Uh, well, I am an architect. Um, um, I practice as an architect, basically, and uh, from time to time, I as well facilitate for tension and trauma release exercises for um, clients somatically that is separate and outside of the main practice of work, Um, and I always felt uh, that there is this quality about um, sensing into our bodies and understanding the felt sense that could help us with how we generate and regenerate conversations, um, whether or not it is in the organizational and teams context or whether or not it is, you know, just interpersonal and personal context with families. So that's kind of like several things that I do at one time. Um, And I I hope that gives you a little clearer picture about uh, what I do. Well, yeah, and it's it's really fascinating. I'm, you know, I'm a big fan of what I would say these these horizontals, you know, where you start to cross disciplines and I think, you know, how we feel and the people component is so fundamental to everything whatever task you're doing. Um, at the same time, sometimes we, we bucketize those. And so I love how you're, you're weaving it together and this notion of the felt sense. I, I know there's a very powerful book um, around how trauma lives in the body. Um, and mm-hmm. I think for people understanding that, it's really, really important to overcome challenges and to be able to free oneself um, from things that could otherwise really hold you back. Um, so it's, Absolutely. It, you know, it's crazy. Yeah, and so, I, I think that's as well, you know, the way for us to have a, a more authentic way of engagement in our conversations. Yeah, I, I'm with you on this. So I'd like to hear a little bit more about what you've experienced in your conversations with folks that you've worked with after they've perhaps gotten a better sense of self. And, and where I'm going with this is we all know that the whole say it skillfully concept starts within. It's about our relationship with our own self and for those who are more grounded, um, who know what are going on for themselves, they are then able to be in better service to others. Um, so I think this lands yeah. squarely in that first step. Yes. Uh, and, uh, well, for myself personally, I find that slowing down uh, so that I could create space in the conversation is, true, is very vital. Um, and it's not just about you know, uh, just slowing down so that others could have the space to express. But it is as well um, a, a, an approach where um, I could take in and, uh, and tap into my sense about the, uh, the, the experiences and the interaction that I'm going to be having at that moment in time with another person, with another body as well. So that's something that I often find um, is... Uh, it could 
be a challenge when you cross over, like you said, you know, the horizontals, and there is uh, there is the performance part of uh, of um, of the work that we primarily would do as a as a as a job, for example, or as a role that uh, that we're often identified with. And then there are as well, like you know, these are the parts where where our natures are. Uh, are in expression and we're using that to be more relational with the people around us or with the teams around us or with the families. Uh, I'm so applauding this that we're going here. I love this. So the this feeling sense and gosh, I was reading uh, an article over Memorial Day about a Marine who had just had a lot of trauma and had was in the numbing mode. And I think your your notion here isn't isn't kind of just the physical slowing down so we give other people space to talk. That that absolutely is a need. We do need to have time for people to talk and, and you know not have the noises versus the quiets, you know, dominating the conversation. The idea of feeling what's going on for me as I'm speaking, as I'm getting ready to speak, that is part of what I would say the micro capability. Because people say, you know, I was shocked. I didn't know I was stunned and so I didn't say anything. And the ability to really settle into the breath and to feel what's going on for us is so powerful. Oriana Huffington was just saying um, that the research showed that people can overcome a stressor in 60 to 90 seconds. It just takes 60 to 90 seconds. So the breathing, the meditation for folks out there who are like, I don't have time, you know, I don't get it. It's uncomfortable. There's a, it really 60 seconds, 90 seconds can make a huge difference in how you're feeling within and why that matters is that's how you come across to other people. And I think a lot of times people don't quite get that, right? And you can tell people who are present and there for you. And it's not, it's not a will. It's, you know, it's just, you can't just make it that way. Sometimes you really need to be able to move through physicalities, um, physical things going through your, your body. Um, and you, you mentioned this knowing our own nature, helping us be more relational. This is where I think some folks can think, well, I don't have time to chit chat. You know, I don't have, how, how was your weekend? You know, Yen, how was the barbecue? And, it, and it's not, it's not just about the chit chat. You know, it's not, it's not, it's, it's, it's really the feeling of the caring that comes across. And I think that's kind of a lot for people sometimes. And I, I don't know that they appreciate that that's what we're really trying to say. You know, what comes across to them as chit chat is really like, you, you've got to find a way to connect. Um, yeah. And so you talked about families, right? And I think this is, yeah. you know, gosh, I don't have my own kids. I have five darling nieces and nephews, you know, and, and you're in conversation though. And you just like, well, you want to tell them that's wrong or this is right. And you can't do this. You can't do that. <laughs> and, <laughs> you know, it, and, you know, I get it. <laughs> it it's, it's a lot to go <sighs> and feel, feel the other person, have that other person feel you. So I just pause yeah. for a bit. What thoughts are coming to you? Um, that's um, that's really interesting for me um, because I could actually just see that parallel going on, um, and you know, it, it acts out not just organizationally, uh, but as well as, uh, as well, families are as well an organizational structure too. But uh, we don't often look or regard family members, um, um, you know, just. Uh, just as uh, uh, just a character, we 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 probably would have had a certain uh, 
you know, um, uh, a stretch of time as well as a, a set of experiences with them where we could uh, connect and understand with their natures a little more accessibly than how you would with organizations or, or companies or teams that you have outside of the family context. And yet, um, there, there is as well this whole um, reciprocity that we lose sight of even as a family member because we're so used to the big brother who always has the solutions, for example. And then suddenly, like recently, in about a few weeks back, my father had a stroke. So we're all suddenly thrown into this whole um, um, family situation of caregiving. Um, and um, and I just suddenly assumed this big sister role, and I I'm like you know um, going through certain emotions, and I don't I don't I'm starting to sense that that connecting and reconnecting to each other's natures as family members in order to be a team. In fact, you know a caregiving team. Uh, it's not it wasn't accessible, and it could be like you said, uh, certain tensions or, or being struck by. A, uh, a, a specific moment of trauma in this case uh, caused me to sort of like retract back into certain modes and certain natures that I just thought about being performative, like how it would be predictably when you're doing um, teams work or organizational work. So that that was an interesting dynamic that I'm seeing and, you know, hearing through our conversation now that there are parallels as well as contrast as well. Yeah, yeah, I, 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 I'm seeing a lot of parallels too. First, my um, heart is out for your father with a stroke and sending healing energy. And he's very fortunate to have a family that is jumping into team caregiving mode. Um, I, you know, I, I'm, re- I'm kind of realizing, and obviously in my own family, you know, you have these roles, big sister, little sister, what have you. And, you know, they, they may be they may be true. They may actually not be true, but they may be true at a point in time. But then people grow and they move away. And I think the awareness of the label that we hold for ourselves and that we hold for others, first having the awareness that that's going on is a really important first step um, because it becomes habitual. It's just de facto. Like, oh, she'll always take, you know, she always the big sister. She'll do that. They just you just kind of assume it, and I and I think that the consciousness to say, hey, that's that is a role that they served. It isn't the person, and then to be able to create together um, the space for people to actually grow out of those. And I think you know I I know this happens in families. Someone goes and they grow, but they come back, and now they're treated as the youngest sibling, you know. And and that's it, that's on both sides because the the sibling you know, wants to break out of the youngest sibling kind of habits. And at the same time, the rest of the family has to enable that, that member to not be that person. And so the consciousness of that is important. And then the ability to have the dialogue, the conversation says, you know what, I've realized something and it's on me. I've always treated you as if, you know, you couldn't fend for yourself and that I needed to do that. And I, did that as a loving sister when I was 10 because, you know, back then you were little and I'm realizing that I'm doing it now. And I don't mean to imply that I don't think you're capable now, right? Because you could easily see how that might have someone feel like I, I, I can't really do it. Um, so it's, it's a real system opportunity to raise it with the benefit, as you were talking about this, how do we create, you know, an even more resilient, more dynamic structure that gives us room to grow and gives us room to, to support each other. Oh, yeah. And to say it skillfully, too, because sometimes when we go into our defaults 
it's so easy because, you know, uh, we're so used to certain ways of saying things to family members without having the empathy and the understanding. Yeah, this is really, uh, this is I, I, probably for a lot of listeners, you're kind of thinking about your own family, like, oh, yep, yep, yep. And I have so many of my own examples. And, you know, I, I struggle with it. It's not easy to say, hey, I was wrong. Um, I think to be able to come up with, you know, I'm realizing that how I was behaving wasn't really helpful. That wasn't my intention. I'm sorry for that, you know, period. And and just hold that. And I, I want to offer for folks that you might be ready to forgive or you might be ready to move on. The other person may not be, and you can't force that. You can only put out that you would hope that the person would receive this in a way where they feel that you're genuine and that whenever they're ready, if they'd like to have a different, a better relationship, that you would be really open to that. And, and so I do want folks to appreciate that, you know, that this whole say it skillfully doesn't mean it gets to the right outcome. It means you've done what you can do and you can feel good about that. Um, and, you know, everyone has to, to make the, the call on their, on their own terms. And Absolutely. I would, yeah, I, I just think that yeah. a lot of that is being in good relationship with yourself. And when you're, when you are, at least I think people are more open. Yeah. And, and, and that's yeah. a, that's the opportunity. And leave the space then after that, because, you know, that's already put out um, as an offer and, uh, and a way for reconciliation or something reciprocal to, to happen, but it doesn't have to be in our own time. Um, at least for myself, this is how I see it. Yeah. Do you have uh, any other t- top takeaway you'd like to share before we wrap, Yen? Uh, not exactly, but I do really appreciate how, you know, you've got uh, certain capacities to just harness the conversations. And um, and I really enjoyed um, listening into how creating space even um, out of the silence that you mentioned um, would really help to facilitate for um, any of the, uh, the type of challenges that we are often confronting with um, in, the, in our day-to-day to... Uh, yeah, all, all sorts of uh, parts of life. So do thank you for that. And uh, I do appreciate your platform for us to share this way, Molly. I appreciate you. And, and uh, thank you for calling in. I know it takes some courage. I'm thanking you for being part of the solution too. You know how to reach me so if I can be of more help, don't hesitate to reach out. Okay, you take good care. No problem. Thank you. You have a good Catch day. Bye. Thanks. Bye. Ah, what a bright light. Okay, over to the Chicago area. I am happy to welcome a return caller, Roger. Roger, welcome to Say It Skillfully. Hello, Molly. Good morning. How are you? I could not be more fabulous. How about you? I'm doing quite well. Thank you for asking. That's awesome. You, my friend, are a poster child for really leaning in to how... Um, how you can amp up your interactions. And I understand that uh, you have a bright spot to share with listeners today. Uh, Yes, I do. Um, It all centers around being open to change. And it's always good to take on new challenges, especially if you encounter uh, what might be unknown. And I have been sharing with uh, staff and mostly students 
and that is if your dream scares you, you're supposed to pursue it. And no matter what it looks like for what we see visually, I say live by faith and not by what you see in front of you because what we see is only temporary. Faith carries you through the unknown and trusting and above to look forward to the greater things to come. And my company went through a change in contractors that uh, somehow did not sit well with a lot of the staff and made them really uh, worried about their position and their role. But I just kept optimistic, and I truly believe we'll have exactly what we say um, based on our thought process. And so in the, in the time frame of, let's say, the last three months, it has been uh, a seesaw for us. But, of course, I continue to motivate even my own department of three people uh, to just stay encouraged and look forward to, if your position is not available, to uh, reapply for it, and neither was mine, let's just anticipate that we can be laid off and then the next day we're, we can all be promoted to something better, which actually it did happen that way. And so um, I wound up getting a position that I had no idea that I thought that I was going to get. And the feedback that it came with was just because how people noticed um, my demeanor and observation. And so I, I would stress to all of the listeners out there, no matter what your circumstances at work and professional life looks like, continue to approach everything with an optimistic attitude because somebody is watching. And I had no idea that two of the people out of the three that were observing how I was handling everything uh, opposite of where some other staff weren't handling it well, uh, they looked at how optimistic and how focused I kept doing my work well into the very end until my um, one of my two positions got phased out. And I would say that they spoke highly up to me, to the new contractors, the new company, corporate entities, and um, I wound up getting not only a promotion after a 20, just a 24-hour layoff, but I also... Um, saw an increase in my net worth that went up quite significantly and um, and all because I just kept a positive mindset. I love it. I'm so smiley. I am so smiley. High <laughs> five for you, my friend. That is so awesome. So um, this this is, you know, I've, we've, we've, on the show, we've talked about how you come across your energy, right? And so this is just living proof of how powerful that is for people who aren't really even in, they're not working with you, but they're seeing you, right? Are sensing how you're moving. And this notion of keep the faith, which I use a lot, and I don't by that necessarily mean a religious faith, although some people do have religious faith, but that faith of that you know, what's needing to happen is happening for some reason. We may not know why. And it's going to get us to a place that we need to be um, and, and, and in a way that we can move forward in a positive way. This notion of faith for you, Roger, in the past, I guess I'd love to hear you contrast. Was there a time where you wouldn't have kept the faith? Um, and then, you know, 
in in your current state now, what has what has empowered you to to just know, you know, it's it's going to be all right. I had to stop. Previously, I used to say the word "I am stressed." I'm stressed out because this is happening, and because I said it, the situation became stressful. And it was all in what I was saying out of my mouth, and because I was confessing, you know, my feelings at that time, because I went through something like this about 10 years ago, and quite honestly, I, it although it was the lateral move, but it was more work with the same pay, and because I kept emphasizing how stressed I was and how I was feeling, it created that type of environment for me. And so it wasn't until uh, probably about just a couple of months ago, uh, a good friend of mine who reached out to me, and he and I have been touched base in about a couple of years just because of schedules and everything else going on. And he emphasized to me about how um, there are times where we want to speak out loud our thoughts and saying what's really on our mind. And if we, and a lot of times if we don't do that without thinking first, it can come out the wrong way and rub others the wrong way. And so I had to change my conversation. My thought process had initially had to first allow me to think things over, observe first the situation, think things through before I make a verbal suggestion or whatever type of environment I was going to create. So, and what I learned is, you know, self-control is good, but it's also important to practice what I call thought control because, you know, we will be held accountable even for our attitudes towards things. Cause even if we don't say it, people can look at our body language, our our uh, nonverbal cues and response. And from there, I had to make those adjustments. And, you know, like sometimes it's good to take a deep breath or uh, get into um, activities that allow you to meditate, um, even ch making changes in your diet to eat healthier foods that are non-processed because a lot of how we eat, whole nutrition, organic, vegan, vegetarian, whatever, those type of things, You'd be amazed on how better your thought process is based on what type of food you take in. And it does allow how well you function throughout the day, how you think. So I play, I put that piece together as well. And so um, I, I feel like it's, it's incredibly important that whatever line of work that you're in, whether you work for a corporation or if you are an entrepreneur, I say that the challenges and the tough times that do come, the unknown. Look at it with joy and embrace it because it's another great opportunity uh, for you to advance to the next level. And when you're met with adversity, all it is, it's designed to just help you push you past your comfort zone and prepare you for something so much greater. And because I am now going to be taking on more responsibility, the flip side of it is, is that I'm surrounded around people, and this is the type of term, this is the type of uh, thought process that I have now. 
no matter what title or role anybody has, I look at everybody the same as a colleague, and I want them to look at me the same way. But the thing that I look at is I surround myself around people who outthink me because they are always going to challenge me. I don't want to be surrounded with those who, if I walk into a room, I'm the one that knows everything. There's no opportunity for me to become better or grow. And so I look at it, and for all the listeners out there, just take a moment and think about those who are around you. Are you growing or are you stagnant? If you're, or if you're not growing, then begin surrounding yourself around people who, who you desire to be where they are. It doesn't have to be um, financially. It could be just in the aspects of their own process and how they look at life. And I truly that's what helps any of us be successful in life, not just professionally, but on a personal level. Such wisdom, and I am just, uh, from our earlier chats, I just, I'm so proud, Roger, of you. I'm so proud of, of just how you're growing, continuing to grow, and obviously the great impact you have on others. Um, maybe we'll just close out. Could you share with listeners just one thing you appreciate about yourself? I'm adaptable. You know, with, you know, being a chameleon, it's like, in any given situation, a lot of times some, if not most, can't deal with change very well. And I've just learned to adapt, you know, take on and see, you know, what new experience, you know, it could be for me. And I'm grateful that I'm uh, no longer defensive when I face adversity. I'm adaptable now. I'm willing to uh, be a part of the change and see where I can um uh, input my value as well as also what I can learn from it and how it can help me move forward. And so um, I look for the right people to uh, you know, be supportive of me as well as I am supportive of them and look for those confidants, those people who you can be yourself around even when nobody else is. And I'm grateful that with that adaptability, it shows that you're flexible and people would want to access you more and utilize you more when you have that type of uh, mindset. And so yeah. uh, I can be pulled in so many different directions, but I do it in such a way that I know when to say yes and I know when to say no. You and got it. In the time when it. I do say no, people respect that. So that's, awesome. that's, that's, the, that's the mindset I have. I appreciate that. We've got a wrap. And I want to thank you for being part of the solution. And you know how to reach me. Keep me posted. If I can be helpful, let me know, Roger. And just know I'm really cheering for you. I appreciate Uh, it, Thank you for having me on today. Oh, it was my pleasure. Um, My thought for the week comes from Roger. When met with adversity, it's preparing you to learn. Look at it with joy and embrace it. And that's a wrap. My thank you for tuning in. Please be part of the solution and kindly share this show. Reflect on your own top takeaways and know I'm cheering for you to be who you are and say what needs to be said so that you and those around you have a shared reality. Essential to make the best decisions, execute with speed, and achieve outstanding outcomes at work and in life.
Thanks for listening to Say It Skillfully with host Molly Chang. Join us again for more ways to say it skillfully next Tuesday, 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific on the Voice America Business Channel. Follow Molly on LinkedIn and Twitter. Check out SayItSkillfully.com and sign up so you don't miss her latest 90-second video. And please, be part of the solution. Kindly tell others about this program so they say it skillfully too. 